Friday, July 11th, 2014, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So, if you listened to our show yesterday, you heard my interview with Mike Sachs, who interviewed tons of comedy writers and comedians for his book, Poking a Dead Frog. And I was listening to another podcast that I like. I do so. I, I sometimes commit poddultery. And it's called The Jeff Rubin, The Jeff Rubin Show. It's a really good show. It's a deep dive. He does hour-long conversations with guys who are memory experts. By the way, we're having that guy on the show. Or he does a lot about comedy. He likes board games. So he actually had Mike Sachs on. And I thought it was a really good interview. It was in-depth. It was about the craft. And a good supplement to our interview. I thought there were a lot of things in our interview that weren't in his, even though his was over an hour long. But... At one point, Mike Sachs said this on The Jeff Rubin Show. With Davis Sedaris, for the first book, I talked for over six hours. And it was going so well, I didn't want to cut the interview or pause the interview. So I ended up urinating into my uh, office trash basket. Yeah, actually, I think I urinated three times. It was such a long interview. And that sparked my interest. Because if you listen yesterday, you heard this anecdote on The Gist. So I ended up urinating in my work trash can twice three times or two times here to square the circle and answer the hard questions mike Sachs. hello mike hi thanks for having me on um i'm glad you interrupted my day this is important stuff and i think we should get to the bottom of it you've been going all around town maybe dealing with peeflation i don't know what's going on here but i'm going to put it to you did you pee twice or three times when talking to david sedaris mike okay well you're um producer, Andrea, got in touch with me, and as soon as she did, I got in touch with my lawyer. Okay. He, he recommended that I go back through my official bathroom log from that day. This is from 2007. I've also been through some surveillance tape, and mm-hmm. what I found is that there was actually two urinary episodes and one BM. So it's two... I, I urinated twice into the basket. All right, you urinated twice. And yeah. anything else that went on? I mean, maybe we could redact that. Well, um, plenty went on, and yeah. plenty goes on every day. Yeah. But as far as the um, bathroom log is concerned, that's just what it says. It's, it's written out in fancy cursive. All right. I mean, uh, that. I mean, talk about tribute to David Sedaris. Yeah, um, I wouldn't have done that with anyone else, quite frankly. Um, usually I would have just said, hey, can I call you back? I would have hung up and then just never gotten back to them. But with David Sedaris, he was such a sweet guy. Yeah. I, I didn't want to ruin the flow, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for your honesty, and I'm glad we got to correct the record. And I want to apologize to all our listeners at the same time. Thank I'm so much. happy you got in touch. Yeah. I think this is extremely important. We're doing the important work here. Yeah. I can tell. Yeah. Um, can you call some other time and ask me about my bathroom habits? <laughs> Can we set up some a regular gig? <laughs> Every Friday at 3. Can we just link directly to the urine log? Please. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Thank you. So today on the show in the spiel, I'll get inside the New York Times bestseller list. All right, bestseller, but how best a seller? Then we'll talk to the woman behind my husband's stupid record collection. It's not really a stupid record collection. It's a really great blog. But first, President Obama is being called upon to visit the border Is it a photo op or a true expression of presidential compassion? (laughs) 
President Obama is in a battle with congressional Republicans over the issue of immigration. This year, over 50,000 unaccompanied minors have been detained at the border. The White House is calling for nearly $4 billion in funding to deal with the crisis. Congress, however, is balking, especially congressional Republicans. Texas Senators Ted Cruz and John Cornyn, along with Karl Rove in a Wall Street Journal op-ed, and the governor of Texas, Rick Perry, have all criticized the president for not heading to the border himself to personally witness the dimensions of the situation. Obama chafed, saying he wasn't interested in a photo op, he's interested in a solution. Good soundbite, but... Visiting domestic crisis zones is what presidents do. It communicates compassion and concern. So when, if ever, does the president need to head down to the Texas border? Well, joining me now is Josh King. Josh was the director of production for presidential events in the Clinton White House. He now hosts a podcast that deals with politics, policy, and perception. It's called Polyoptics. It's a truly excellent podcast. Hello, Josh. Hi, Mike. President Obama was being criticized for not going to the border. There are 52,000 unaccompanied minors who are who have crossed the border and are awaiting processing. So the White House has told reporters off the record that he's in a damned if he does, damned if he doesn't situation. So here's what I want to know. If back when you were working in the White House, would this be the sort of thing that someone would come to you and say, we have to we have to investigate all our options Where would you put the president? How would you best position him if we were to go to the border? Well, Mike, I think the difference between 2014 and 1994 is that the White House could easily be ahead of these stories and be the first person on the scene, whether it's after a hurricane or after the Oklahoma City bombing or any moments of distress. The president was the first person to say, I want to get in Air Force One and go to this place. Now, in the age of Twitter and immediate clarion calls for movement by the president, you already have an organized cabal to try and get the president to upend his fundraising schedule in Denver and Austin to divert Air Force One 30 more minutes down to El Paso. And he's an easy target. He's raising funds in Denver. He's playing pool with John Hickenlooper. He's ordering barbecue in Austin. Why can't he go to the border? This is his Katrina. The White House just gets behind the story, whereas in the Clinton days, we would have been ahead of this story and probably already on Air Force One before anyone suggested the idea. Okay, so do you think that this is his Katrina argument is fair, either in terms of, I'm going to guess you're going to say for Obama, no, but maybe it was unfair of to say about President Bush that actually going and not just routing the plane to fly over New Orleans was a major policy choice. You asked if it's fair. I'll say it's convenient. It's a convenient attack. It works on the Obama White House, Mike. The realities are that when you take the U.S. president, the commander-in-chief, and send him anywhere, you divert attention from everything else, all the law enforcement activity, all the border patrol activity. Every asset that's in location is probably given over to securing the plane, the motorcade, and the movement, and the appearance by the president. My sense, Mike is that President Obama also just does not like to get bullied. He doesn't like to get told where to go. But once the dust settles a little bit, you'll see a trip down to the border. I think that's probably a good bet. And so what's the best way to position that from a polyoptics standpoint? You do want to let a little of this dust die down. You want to make sure that you go down and you have the uh, meeting with the right officials, bipartisan group, 
in a uh, indoor space so that you really can have a conversation. Mm-hmm. You'll have the pool brought in. There'll be pictures taken so that the the substance of the event can happen. Then you might have a press availability. And then <laughs> President Obama says, Mike, that he doesn't want to do photo ops. They'll do a photo op. They'll do something that will put him in the border and looking at the situation up close in the same way that eventually President Bush did at Katrina, President Clinton did in Oklahoma City, and talk to people and hear their stories firsthand. He just doesn't want to be pushed into it. When he does go, do you think he should be seen interacting with uh, any of the children who maybe now face a deportation hearing? When the president goes to places where innocent people are deeply affected, and you can talk about after the fact of a hurricane or a tornado or terrorism, or when kids have walked uh, thousands of miles uh, and crossed the border just to find opportunity, and they are facing the situation, uh, the, the way one usually handles it is to find opportunities really behind closed doors to let the president meet these people directly, hear their stories, and not have media coverage. This will raise, of course, if they do it this way, which is sort of the standard way of doing it, that usual question of whether the White House would release an official photo of that, mm-hmm. which I, I think is usually not a great tactic and should not be done, because if you think of when the president goes to Walter Reed or goes to the site of a natural disaster, you do want to protect people's privacy. But it's between you know, the White House and the people that the president talks to. I wouldn't do it if you don't allow the rest of the traveling press to see it. Can you ever remember from your career um, an event that was essentially a photo op, you know, president going, meeting people that actually turned into something deeper or more resonant that had nothing to do with the optics of it? You're asking the wrong person, I think, to call presidential activity merely photo ops, because I think that every time a president of the United States uh, bestows his interest and caring and focus on an average person, a person who, you know, goes through their day, goes through their lives, as President Clinton used to say, uh, you know, playing by the rules and does good things and, and attracts the interest of the president. It is an incredibly profound thing for that person. The fact that the press is in tow, happens to take pictures, it's often deserved of the person who's devoted their life to something so important or who's done an amazing thing or who has suffered uh, a terrible loss. And we understand more the profoundness of that accomplishment or that loss because the president himself uh, took interest. So I'm, uh, I'm of the view that photo ops are really important because uh, if not for the president's interest, the White House press pool does not come along, and we all do not get to understand this moment in, in American history. Josh King hosts the Polyoptics podcast. Thanks a lot, Josh. Thanks, Mike. Sarah and Alex are a really nice couple, early 30s, Brooklyn, work in media. They both wear glasses. They're bookish. They're eclectic. They're just nice. I happen to know them. Lovely couple. The kind of couple who just makes sense. There's just one thing. Alex has baggage. Really, boxage. Boxes and boxes of waxage. Alex is a music collector, a record collector. 
So what does Sarah to do? Sarah started a blog. It is called My Husband's Stupid Record Collection. And unlike a lot of the records in the collection, it's a hit. Sarah Ohala is here. Hello, Sarah. Hi. How many records are in this collection? Well, we actually don't know exactly, but our guess is 1,500. So during the courtship phase, was this as if he had a giant Great Dane? Was this as if he had, I don't know, two kids in Canada? What was the, what's the analogy? I usually refuse to, you know, carry the record boxes when we moved. That makes sense. I do remember the first apartment we lived in, he had them stacked on like a really cheap Ikea bookshelf and like in the middle of the night one night it collapsed yeah so what was your relationship with his collection before you embarked on the project and we should say describe the project over the years i i used his record collection but i would just sort of pick bands that i already knew and Mm -hmm. you know wouldn't really go out of my comfort zone but usually i wouldn't like remember anything like actually this captain beefheart album there's one song he plays all the time and i didn't know it was on this album okay when it came on i was like oh you want to put it on? You brought a few albums with okay. you. Okay, this one I actually just reviewed yesterday. and mm-hmm. What's, so, What album is this? It's called Safe as Milk, All and right. it's their first album, or his first album. It's Captain Beefheart and his magic band. Right. And so the cover looks like uh, pretty much the cover of Astral Weeks by... Uh, oh, yeah. What's that dude's name? Van Marsen. Yeah, thank you, Van but Marsen. But it is nothing like no. Astral Weeks. Captain Beefheart is Trout Mask Replica, and we're all supposed to think he's a genius, but it's just hard to listen to. <laughs> So that song does cry out for analysis. What was your analysis? I kept thinking about the Disney movie, The Jungle Book. Oh, yeah. And just sort of like picturing like a big bear kind of like dancing to it and like a little snake or something like animal animals dancing to it. It's almost like childlike. It doesn't feel like kids music either. It has like a weird vibe to it and um, very original and kind of like nothing I've heard before, which makes it feel very timeless. But then it also has like your sort of classic 60s rock with heavy blues influence and which, you know, I always like that kind of music. The way you write these reviews as you detailed your methods, try not to get too much knowledge. But most people who are writing music reviews, even if they come to a particular new release or a, or a song they hadn't heard before and they try to be tabula rasa, they're going to know a lot about it. And yeah. it's going to be hard for them not to get that information into their reviews. But you're really doing something kind of different. Your writing as someone who really appreciates music not only doesn't pretend to know a lot about music, but kind of actively doesn't try to get steeped in the nuance of it just tries to actually listen to and react to the music yeah i definitely didn't realize it at first because i had the idea i set up the tumblr i wrote wrote my first post being like this is what i'm gonna do and then i was when i went to do the first record i did have a moment of being like oh wait i don't know how to write about music what am i thinking (laughs) you know so and then i was like no just put it aside don't think that way just put it on and start writing so that's what i did and and that's the way it ended up working. And then you will, as you're listening to it, you'll say, now I just looked up this on his Wikipedia page. And that's kind of how people do listen to music. Part of my not looking at Wikipedia until a couple songs in is I really do try to sit there and just listen for as long as I can stand it. It's kind of like a nice break to be like, I'm just sitting on the couch right now and listening and I'm not doing anything else. (laughs) 
All right, so I brought the Buzzcocks singles going steady, and this one, especially side one, I just thought was just like a masterpiece. And I think something I really like about it is, you know, I'm a librarian, and it gives like my 32 year old self the same feeling I have when I read young adult novels or, you know, watch a coming of age movie. I guess they're not quite as popular as like the Ramones, which I know. Right. But um, similar sound, and I actually feel like I like this a lot better, a lot more than the Ramones. Um, but it's just like I don't know, like the angst in his voice and the, some of the lyrics are just like they're kind of desperate and like angry and sad and hopeful. They're just—it's just like really emotional. So when my husband's stupid record collection, the tone of it, the fact that you go in there not as an expert, you know, there were some music writers, female music writers, who said something along the lines of, oh, you know, this sets back women or this um, supports the idea that women women are silly, flibbity gibbets yeah. and, the, and the men are the ones with interesting Well, also, collections. so there's like a lot of men and still are a lot of men reading my blog Another criticism was that the only reason men were reading it was because I was coming across as naive and writing about music in this way that was basically saying I don't know what I'm talking about. So that if I was, if I hadn't been writing that way, then men wouldn't be reading my writing. Right. Um, once I was over the shock of um, strangers not liking me, I'm call, um, calling your, out your feminist uh, uh, um, credentials. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually really could hear the argument, and I think it's an interesting argument. I think that women aren't treated equally in the music industry, but I also feel that a I was never trying to become a music critic, and also I think that I was just saying staying true to who who I was. That's when I can do my best writing, if I can actually be myself, which is not easy <laughs> when you're writing. So I was really trying to just be myself, and um, I was just doing what I wanted to do. Well, you're obviously wrong, and you've betrayed the cause. But thank you anyway <laughs> for coming in today. Thanks. Sarah Ohala is the blogger behind my husband's stupid record collection, which is alltherecords.tumblr.com. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you. Run, run, morning soon. And now the spiel. A provocateur's book on Hillary Clinton overtakes her memoir in sales, the New York Times tells us. Other outlets noticing this news, too. Hillary Clinton's cautious and wrote hard choices is out of the top spot in the New York Times bestseller list. Ascending to that spot, Blood Feud, a nasty, gossip-filled anti-Clinton book with sourcing that makes Clifford Irving look like the ombudsman for the ombudsman for the New Yorker. But as I've said in this space before, the numbers matter. So number one and two on the bestseller list, those are numbers. But let's dig deeper to find out about the nature of how this one book overtook the other. There are some stats in the Times article. Here we go. The week that ended July 5th, Mr. Klein's book, Blood Feud, had sold 20,105 copies. 
Mrs. Clinton's book sold 16,646 copies. But that's just one week. So the verb overtakes, that's a little like saying at halftime, the score is the Heat 50 and the Cavaliers 40. But then in the third quarter, the Heat score 25 points and the Cavs score 26 points. So did the Cavs overtake the Heat? I'll do the math for you. No, they did not. And the way we score NBA games, you know, the total score, the score of the game at that point, the Heat is still winning. I will have to say, in real life, the Cavs have overtaken the Heat, but that's another subject. Back to books. What is astonishing is the low, low number of these books that have sold, not in relation to expectations of the publishers, just in relation to influence. Hillary Clinton's book tour was covered everywhere. Yes, it's a chance to cover Hillary Clinton because she is just the Greta Garbo of extremely public figures who literally need public approval in order to get her next job. All right, that aside, but 16,000 people this week, even 20,000 for the Blood Feud book, Let's compare it to other media. Talk about a newspaper that has a circulation of 20,000. I was going through the list. I couldn't even find one in the top 100, so I went to some awards. And a couple newspapers that have been given awards in the category of newspapers from 20,000 to 40,000 in circulation include The Citizen's Voice of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, The Times Leader of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, and The Herald Standard of Uniontown. Right. Where? Well, it's also in Pennsylvania. I don't know if this was just a Pennsylvania award banquet, but that's the level of newspaper that if we're talking about 20,000 in circulation, actually more than 20,000 in circulation. Now in the world of music, let's compare 20,000 or so to that. Robin Thicke is being pilloried for his terrible record sales for his new album. Here's a headline, dismal record sales for Robin Thicke. And what are they predicting? 20 to 25,000 this week. Blurred Lines, which was his last album, which was a hit, debuted with 177,000 copies in the first week that it was on sale. Another example from the world of music Romeo Santos is selling out Yankee Stadium today and tomorrow. Ever hear of him? You probably haven't, unless you like bachata music. Ever hear of bachata music? It's dance music from the Dominican, but that's my point. A star in a genre that you've never heard of is selling five times as many tickets this weekend as Hillary Clinton is selling books. I'm going to keep going. Akron Radio, number one show on Akron Radio, Shores and Steel have a CUME Monday to Friday audience of 62,000. I'll quote this article from the Toledo Blade. To give their domination context, consider that Shores and Steel had 20,000 more listeners than their second place competition, The Bob and Tom Show on 104.7. But then consider that Bob and Tom had 20,000 more listeners than Edward Klein or Hillary Clinton sold books last week. So... The article in the Times does actually give you the total number of sales and actually admits that Hillary Clinton has sold more books than Edward Klein, and it gives only Hillary Clinton sales, and it's said it has sold 177,000 books in hardcover. All right, let's, let's use that, the total number of sales. Well, I looked up what were the biggest flops in the movies of 2013. Remember 47 Ronin, the Keanu Reeves movie? You probably don't because it was a huge flop. Variety headline, the inside story of universal samurai disaster, box office disaster, 47 Ronin. 47 Ronin took in $38 million in the U.S. box office. Divide that by the average ticket price according to the National Association of Theater Owners of $8.13, and we find that 4.6 million people saw 47 Ronin. 
That's 25 times the number of the people who bought the Hillary book. So I'll give you all the caveats. Books are more expensive. They take up more of your time to consume than most of the other media that I've mentioned. Maybe not all the shows on Akron Radio. But yes, that's true. But really, books have just an outsized place in our imagination. We conceive of them as so much more important than they are, so much bigger than their literal reach. They're still agenda setters. They're still jumping off points for other discussions. They still get newspapers in Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, and Youngstown talk show hosts talking about them. But in reality, they're just not as big as bachata. I'm sorry to say it, but publish has perished in almost all ways except as an idea. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of Slate Podcasts and the curator of the Tumblr site, My Roommate's Stupid Roommate. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He is the proprietor of the MySpace page, My Heart's Stupid Ventricles. You could subscribe in iTunes and please leave us a review. We are at facebook.com slash slate gist. Email us directly at thegist at slate.com. Hey, sign up for our email and then we'll send you an email as soon as the show is up and you can listen to the show from the email. That's at slate.com slash gist email. I invite you to check out my e-zine my shadow cabinet, stupid shadow minister for the arts, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.